It's that time of the week again. It's that time when the latest episode of Digital Kill the Radio Star drops. Drop! It's time to waste another hour or so with David and Chris as they spout out more of their worthless music knowledge. It's time to hear them discuss the music of their youth. As well as the music of today. So kick back, relax, and have some fun with David and Chris. Digital Kill the Radio Star starts right Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Digital Kill the Radio Star podcast. This is David. Hope everybody has recovered from the holiday season. Uh, As for me, the new year brought in a nice little sinus infection that I'm battling, so uh, bear with me if if I don't sound that great and uh, I cough a lot, but we will get through it. I do want to say before we get started, uh, a big thank you to everybody that's been listening and sharing uh, our episodes. Um, I looked at the final download numbers for last year. And our downloads were up 225% from the first year. So uh, I can't complain about that. I know Chris can't either. We're really excited about that. And we want to try to continue that growth. So um, subscribe to us on iTunes or Apple Podcast and uh, Stitcher and SoundCloud and Podchaser. And like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Digital Killed and on Instagram at Digital Killed, the Radio Star Podcast. So I have a very special guest for us this week. Uh, If you remember... Back about two years ago, right after I started, or Chris and I started this podcast, uh, I had my friend Gage Patterson on, and we did a uh, entire episode uh, talking about the My Morning Jacket catalog, which was a lot of fun, and uh, a big thank you to My Morning Jacket for retweeting that. Our downloads really liked that. So Gage and I uh, have been friends, oh man, 25 years, I guess, or so, and uh, Gage is a really, really big Grateful Dead fan. And I'm a fan of the Grateful Dead in particular, a couple of eras, but I'm nowhere near the archivist or aficionado that he is. And he and I had been talking about uh, doing a podcast for a while on um, 1972 with uh, the um, uh, Grateful Dead, their tour and the album. It's one of my favorite live albums of all time. And uh, I know uh, Gage actually has all of them that were recorded that year. So that's a pretty extensive library. So, uh, Without further ado, Gage Patterson. How are you, Gage? I'm doing well, Mr. Hudson. Thanks so much for having me on yet again. And before we get too far into it, congrats on your um, on the growth of your podcast and the reach um, that you're you're experiencing. That's that's pretty exciting. Oh yeah, it's uh, who would have known two two knuckleheads talking about music, and we're in over seventy countries now. And um, uh, I I'm really thrilled with it. It's a lot of fun. It's a labor of love, but it. Uh, it's one of those ones that uh, it pays you back. It, it loves you back, unlike uh, some of our favorite sports teams, Gage. Yes, yes, agreed. The Rebels did did, did pull it out today. 
but uh, we have many miles to go before we sleep. Yeah, Gage and I both went to uh, Ole Miss, University of Mississippi, and uh, if you're a fan of Ole Miss, you uh, you you know, no heartache, and so uh, we take what we can get. Um, Gage, last time I talked to you, you were living in Chicago, and you have moved out west to Boise, Idaho. How was the move? Uh, the move is great. Uh, we moved out here about a year and a half ago, and we're just looking for a little bit of change of lifestyle perspective, which we certainly got, and embracing that everything that Idaho and the West has to offer in terms of um, outdoors, camping, skiing, hiking, um, all that good stuff. So we are we are very happy to be out here, and um, even though um, you know I'm a ways away from my family and friends, uh, technology is able to keep you um, at a relatively close distance. So I gotta think, though, being a, a music nut like you are, your music chances, your chances of seeing regular good music live is probably a whole lot smaller than it was in Chicago. Yeah, it is. It is. It is a bit frustrating because I, I kind of I uh, go through uh, live music withdrawals, uh, as I'm sure you do as well from time to time. Mm-hmm. And um, and all that. That being said, last night I did get the opportunity opportunity to attend the Elton John concert, on a goodbye or farewell Yellow Brick Road tour, which one would assume is his last kind of world U.S. tour. And it was a lot of fun. I mean, um, he uh, he has, still has a great voice. Played all the hits. Uh, Every song you wanted to hear, you got to hear. That being said, he he doesn't move like like he used to. He kind of walks like a hobbit, (laughs) to be quite honest. uh, He doesn't move around that well, but he had had three costume changes. Um, He he put a lot of effort into it. He didn't mail it in, um, and it was was a lot of fun. I went with my wife and and one of her friends, and uh, it, it was a great time. Was it pretty much a greatest hit show? Uh, yes, no, no question. It was Grace Hit Show, and you know, as a seasoned concert attender, I'm I'm a bit jaded when it comes to the overall experience. And so sometimes when people do annoying things at concerts, like I tend to kind of maybe focus in on that unnecessarily. And a lot of people around here don't get to see people like Elton John on a regular basis, whereas opposed to living in Chicago. So, like, you know, you had some people who were, like, filming the entire show on their phones, you know, which I think is extremely obnoxious. And I had to tell this one lady, like, put your phone down. Like, I, all when I'm looking at the stage, all I can see is, is the back of your phone. So um, that's just my kind of, like, OCD concert going <laughs> condition. Uh, I, I completely with you. My, my pet peeve is when people want to go and stand in front of the stage or stand with the band playing in the background and get, like, a picture with their girlfriend or boyfriend. Yes. Uh, oh man, I went to see uh, the Experience Hendrix tour here in Jackson. It was Zach Wilde, uh, Johnny Lang, Brad Woodford from Aerosmith, Buddy Guy. I mean, you name it. You know, they were there. Eric Johnson and I had front row seats, and I'd really never been like front row for you know standing up against a rail, but never like front row seats for something. Right. And it was so annoying because everybody kept coming up in front of us wanting to like take a picture, you know, with Buddy Guy in the background. And I'm, uh, man, drives me crazy. But I mean, I'm sure you're like me. I, I go to a concert for the music and not to be seen or, or have anybody see me, you know? Yeah. And when I actually go to shows now, I don't mind standing back in like the back third of the room. Completely or, agree. Or the stadium. Typically, the sound is better. This is maybe just a little. PSA for for anyone uh, who likes to be up front or likes to be in the back. In my opinion, I think that sounds better in the back. You can pick up if you're going to a stadium show. The lights are much better. 
and easier access to bathrooms and beers. I agree. I went to see uh, Roger Waters do the wall and um, set third row dead center and paid an arm and two legs for the ticket. And honestly, mm-hmm. I think it, I mean, it, it was my favorite concert experience I've ever had, but I think if I were 30 or 40 rows back, I would have enjoyed it much more because it would have sounded better and I would have been able to see, to see more, especially at these, you know, a big show like Elton John. How, how big is the arena that, that he played in? Uh, so it's Boise State's basketball arena, and it's probably around, I would say, twelve to 14,000. Okay, so not, uh, not so small, mid-size. Not small, mid-size. It's, it's definitely bigger than the pavilion at Ole Miss. Um, well, let me ask you this, Gage, living in Boise. Let's say, you know, somebody really big like the Stones or Aerosmith or something like that, if they don't come to Boise, what's the nearest place they're going to play? So typically what happens is, like like Radiohead, Radiohead's last tour, okay? So mm-hmm. this is this would be a good example. They hit um, uh, Salt Lake, then they, then they skip over Boise, and they go to Portland and Seattle. So is, is Portland the closest of those three to you? No, Salt Lake is. Salt Lake is like five hours away. I'm actually going there in two weeks. But uh, Salt Lake is five hours. Portland's seven. Seattle, seven and a half, eight. Wow. So you're... You really are kind of on an island. Yeah, yeah. We're for, uh, for we're, some uh, reason I thought Boise was only like two hours from Portland, but I guess I was wrong. Yeah, the uh, states in the west are much bigger, so a lot more distance. Yeah, and I tell you what, I, I drove from uh, here to uh, Vail, Colorado, a couple of summers ago, and you know we're we're in no danger of being overcrowded in this country. No, um, try try driving through uh, western Nebraska; it just doesn't stop. Yeah, yeah, that's the way that's the way Kansas is. Um, you leave Denver, and there's a a sign for like Salina, Kansas, that says 423 miles, and there's nothing between there and and that. But yeah, hey, but you get you get a chance to listen to music all you want to when you're driving. That is that's great. Or listen to Digital uh, Kill the Radio Star podcast. Hey, that's what I'm talking about. Listen to it three or four times. Um, all right, Gage. So um, our kind of the main part of our podcast today is going to be talking about the Grateful Dead and, in sp- and specifically the year 1972 and uh, the album that they put out documenting their tour in Europe. Um, kind of, kind of walk me up to where, how you, the dead became on your radar, uh, how you became such a big fan. Was it a slow build or was it like, you know, like I've had some bands, literally there's just a light goes off and I'll go from not caring to obsessed with them. Kind of walk us through your your fandom and how you got to where you are. Yeah, so the analogy I would use, like when you talk about like getting drunk, like it happens very slowly, then all at once. Right. <laughs> and and I had some friends in high school who listened to the Grateful Dead, and I graduated high school in 1993 while while the Dead were still touring. Um, you know, Jerry would pass away in '95. And I wasn't really into it. I listened to it a little bit, uh, and then I I was more kind of like, um, what was I listening to? U2, um, I had like some classic rock, things like that at the time. That's what I was listening to. Then I went down to Ole Miss, and going to school in the South, in the Southeast, really exposed me to a whole different genre of music. And whether it was kind of like Americana, um, country rock, like, you know, um, like Beanland, yeah. uh, you know, Sunvolt. Wilco, yeah, like yeah. Wilco, right, exactly. And so that kind of – my horizons were expanded, and I saw a, lot, saw a lot more live music, right? We'd go out on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday nights or have bands play at, at the fraternity house, which was, um, which was a great experience for me just in general. But 
so I started I started listening to him a lot more. I would say sophomore year in college, and what kind of flipped the switch for me? I was at a record store that yes, those still exist, uh, and down to, on the square. And you help help me out with the name, Uncle it, Bucks. Uncle Bucks, Uncle Bucks, and I bought Dick's Picks Six, Volume Six, which is a archival release um, by the former um, Grateful Dead archivist Dick Latvala. He uh, he released, I want to say, thirty six shows before he passed away, and I, I it was number six, and it was a show from uh, November or excuse me, um, October of eighty three. I think it was in Connecticut, and it kind of hooked me in. Like the hook was set. And that's what kind of like led me down the uh, the rabbit hole and exploring the the entire kind of canon of their work, which is v- extremely varied. Like any good band out there, no matter what the genre is, if they sound the same in their first year that they do in their twentieth year, I guarantee you they're probably not as good as they think they are. Right? Oh, I completely agree with that. Because most, yeah, you know, I mean, most bands grow, evolve, and constantly push boundaries and also take in influences um, and kind of put the work that in, into their mix and, uh, and into their uh, talent set. Yeah. You know, going to school at the time that we did and where we did, there's no way to get away from that. And like Gage was saying, um, if you're not familiar with Oxford, Mississippi, it's a very rich uh, in, in culture and the arts uh you know, there's been so many, just some of the best writers in the world have lived there, and uh, a lot of great music for a, for a small town used to come through there when we were there. I know I saw Watch Red Panic a couple of times, Almond Brothers, uh, Big Head Todd and the Monsters. You could go see Better Than Ezra literally every month if you wanted to. I saw um, I remember seeing Better Than Ezra at the Gin, rest in peace. Uh, uh, I think my freshman year, and then they like blew up for a while, and then they kind of came back to earth. And but yeah, or like um, or or like Blue Mountain, right? A local yeah. Oxford band who um, who is super talented and successful enough in their own right, and who I exposed to like my friends back in Chicago, and they loved them. And you know, right? And so, you had so much uh, JoJo Herman from Watchbread Panic lived there. Uh, you had uh, Uncle Tupelo used to tour through there a lot. John from Uncle Tupelo went on to be in Wilco. Uh, so yep. it, it was, you know, like you said, it, it was a, that kind of music was really big, especially when we were in college. You know, growing up, I'd heard the name Grateful Dead a lot. My dad is kind of a big music guy. He was more like a Stones and Zeppelin guy. But I guess really all I knew growing up was tr- the song Truckin' and then the um, Touch of Grey video that came yeah. out in 87, you know, with the, with the skeletons and everything. And, you know, you hear the Grateful Dead and, you know, I'm like 10 or 11 years old and hear Grateful Dead. I'm like, oh, it's going to be like a death metal band, you know, I, but it, obviously it's not. But they have this cool video with the uh, the skeletons and then it shows them playing at the end. And that album, from everything I know, like, you know, they weren't expecting it to blow up, but it, it was a really big album. And that, that song was huge on MTV. Yeah, it was big. And it was kind of the beginning of the end, I think, where they went from being able to, to play, I don't know, basketball arenas and or kind of like outdoor sheds to then play after um, In the Dark came out, which Touch of Grey was on, it, they were playing, you know, huge state like RFK or they're playing Soldier Field. Right. Or, you know, massive stadiums. And then you, there's a lot of problems that come with that. The scene gets too big and there's a lot of un, unwanted attention 
from you know authorities and etc. Well, and then you have people going strictly because it's a thing, right? More so than ever, and you have, you know, you have people that think, oh, it's just a great, it's a great reason to go and do a bunch of drugs. We've got a lot of people showing up to do drugs that don't normally do drugs, and then you know you've got problems. Uh, yeah, you've got yeah. you know overdoses, you've got fights, you know. Anyway, um, so yeah, so I you know just kind of knew who they were and then got to college, you know, and like we said, a lot of people listen to them. And Gage, I don't, I was thinking about this this morning when I was driving into work. I don't think I've ever told you this. So I was just kind of, you know, knew who they were and, and thought a lot of it honestly was just, you know, a bunch of junk there for a while, all the noodling and everything. Right. And uh, I remember one afternoon, you know, I used to come over to your house uh, to wash my clothes every now and then when I live in the fraternity house <laughs> and uh, Gage for lack of a better term, basically had a living room that was, was a couch. It was, <laughs> is, it was like, wasn't it something like 64 square feet of couch or something like that? 64 square feet of pure love, David. Yeah. Pure love. And so, uh, as you can imagine in college, uh, you just kind of get on that thing. And next thing you know, the time has disappeared and, uh, you know, like a Saturday afternoon and you were playing the grateful dead. And I heard, I don't know what, you know, what show it was, but I heard Jack Straw, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Wow, that's really good." And I, still to this day, that's my favorite um, Grateful Dead song. And that just kind of, you know, planted a seed. And then four or five years later, I really got into like you know the Black Crows and some of that kind of music. And once I did, uh, I found myself getting into the dead and the first grateful dead album I bought was Europe 72, which we're, which we're going to talk about. And, um, I absolutely love it. And I find myself getting in these little spurts where I'll do nothing but listen to the dead for two weeks. And then I may put it down to maybe six months, um, before I get back into it. But, you know, they've got all the, um, the archival releases, you know, have come out like, uh, you know, you have Cornell 77, you have the Sunshine Daydream, you know, there's just a ton, probably 20 or 30 of them. And yeah. so you're able, much easier than when we were in college, to listen to the band and, like you said, hear how they have evolved. Now, I know there's a big debate amongst a lot of deadheads, 72 versus 77. Are one of those years your favorite year or is there another one that's your favorite year? You know, I um I don't really have a favorite year because the genre of dead that I listen to kind of depends on my mood, and uh, it's kind of a cop out answer I know, but I feel like if I'm in kind of in for the primal raw dead of sixty nine sixty eight, you've got that, and then you know seventy two is the end of a transition period for for, for the dead. Seventy four, in my opinion, was the culmination of that. And then 77 was a much slicker, polished version of The Grateful Dead. And also also there was some disco influences, if you, if you can believe it, of, uh, of The Dead in 1977, which were positive. Um, some you, people... You can't, you can't say that for minivans when they say they have a disco influence. No, no, you can't. But, you know... Was that like the Shakedown Street era? Yeah, it was Shakedown Street. So I would, um, I would put, you know, when you want... Th- um, Shake Down Street for sure, and then if you if you listen to Dancing in the Streets from a Spring '77 tour versus to when they were doing it in 1970, I mean it's not even the same song. I mean it's just it's, the version of '77 is super funky, danceable, 
Uh, the versions in 1970 with, with Pigpen are danceable, but it's more raw and it's more kind of like in-your-face bluesy. Mm-hmm. So it's just a um, it's a much different interpretation of the same song uh, with just a, a completely different view. All right, everybody. So like I said, Gage is much more the aficionado than, than me. So I'm going to kind of let him um, kind of walk us through how the band progressed from their early days up until the uh, two, the the was it two month or three month tour of Europe? Oh, uh, so the tour is actually they did twenty one shows over over six weeks. Okay, so a month and a half. Yeah, and um, so yeah, so let's just kind of rewind it two or three years uh, to kind of lay the groundwork for how, in what condition they arrived on the shores of Europe in in April of seventy two. So. The Grateful Dead, at their at their kind of uh, inception, were very very raw and primal sound. And if like the great example of that would be um, Caution, the song Caution, or even uh, Saint Stephen, um, Death Don't Have No Mercy. These are this is off um, off albums, um, Grateful Dead, Grateful Dead, which was their first one, and then also um, Oxamoxa and um, sorry uh, Anthem of the Sun. And then also, one of the debatably greatest live albums is Live Dead, which is which was released in 1969. That included um, Dark Star, The Eleven, um, before mentioned Death Don't Have uh, No Mercy. So these were these were lacking melody and harmonies, and just kind of very in your face and very heavily influenced by Acid, uh, to be totally frank, and kind of that drug culture experience that was who was who was the acid chemist that they hired to go around with them uh owley owsley yeah it was it was it was uh bear owsley um bear i can't remember his first name bear was his nickname but he so he mixed a lot of the acid at the acid tests in san francisco he also recorded most of the shows from that era um so you can thank him for uh, for a lot of the shows from being like you know 68 to like 70 then he went to jail for a while if memory serves me correct, for um, for distributing acid, it but uh, yeah, it, it, it you know it, it is a high risk profession. <laughs> but but so you had those those um, external influences, you know, you know, kind of um, influencing influencing the music, and it became very raw. It was raw and very primal, and it's amazing in my opinion. I mean, if you're in the mood for that, it definitely uh, checks a box. Now, their main influence when they released Working Man's Dead and American Beauty, both in 1970, which are amazing albums. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young was a huge, huge influence on, on The Grateful Dead at that time because they were, if you, if you, you know, look at, um, at their albums that Crosby, Stills, Nash released at the time, so far, etc., they were much more melodic harmonies. Vocals were, were very, uh, very clean and, um, and coordinated. And The Dead kind of, went down that path with their own take on it and a little bit more of a, uh, I don't want to say countryfied, but more of an uh, Americana um, version of it. So if you listen to Live Dead, released in 1969, and then listen to Working Man's Dead, released in 1970, it's, it's amazing the total 180 that the band did in a relatively short amount of time based on influences um, from Crosby, Stills, and Nash, among others. And uh, over the course of 1970 and, and 71, they started working new material into their sets while still maintaining, like, you know, the heavy dark stars, the 11, 
um, turn on your, your love light that uh, that pig pen would uh, would would front. And but at the same time, they were working Uncle John's band in, into the mix. Um, Ripple broke down Palace. These are ballads. Not, I wouldn't say ballads, maybe, but but just um, more laid back, harmonized with really distinct melodies. And um, the Grateful Dead's main songwriter, for the most part, Robert Hunter, was was doing a lot of great work with, with Jerry Garcia. And in one afternoon in 1969, he wrote To Lay Me Down, A Broke Down Palace, and A Ripple, um, which were three of the classic Grateful Dead songs. He, he, was, in, um, he was in London uh, at the time, and he wrote that all in one afternoon. All right, let, then, me, let, me, let me stop you real quick. Yeah. I, I want to I get some more information on Robert Hunter from yeah. you, because he was primarily Garcia's writing partner, right? He did do a couple of tunes. He did Jack Straw with, with, with Weir. Yeah, I knew he did, did some, but... Was he an actual musician or was he just a lyricist? You know, like you have, like uh, David Gilmore's wife. You know, uh, she writes a lot of the Pink Floyd lyrics once Waters was out. You know, but I don't think she's really a musician. It, was he an actual musician or was he just, you know, kind of a, for lack of a better term, kind of like a poet or something? No, he's definitely a musician. I've actually seen him play live okay. uh, in '04, one of the reincarnations of the dead when Warren Haynes played with Weir and um, and Lesh. And uh, Robert Hunter opened, and uh, actually Warren Haynes did a really cool cover of One by U2, but I, I digress. Um, so yes, he was absolutely a, a musician. He and Jerry played together in in bluegrass bands in the early 60s around San Francisco, and he kind of found his niche in songwriting, and you know, and and so you know, he he was kind of Jerry's muse, and and Jerry, you know, wrote some amazing mu- uh, music on top of those lyrics. And we have, um, in my opinion, some of the greatest songs ever written in the so 20th century. So you, you would say he's as integral to their success as the members of the band were? There's no question. Okay. Okay. All right. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So 1970, 71, major transition years. You're introducing a lot of a lot of new music, and that is much different than, than what um, they previously played. So the audience, um, you know, kind of had to become a little bit more uh, adjusted to, to the different style that, that they were being um, presented with. And, um, you know, it was, it was met with, they, they received their first critical success with, with, with American Beauty and Truckin' was on American Beauty. And I don't know how high it went up on the charts, but it was, you know, by all modern standards, a hit, quote unquote hit. I, th- I think that, you know, in retrospect, that album probably did more to influence music coming after it than almost any other album because it truly was a slice of Americana. Yeah. I mean, and also just looking at the track list on American Beauty, like Sugar, Sugar Magnolia, that is like a set closing rocker, basically from 72 on. When it was released in 1970, it had a very countryist twang. And it was it sounded like many songs do on um, on albums versus live. It, it has a different sound, but this is a a much dialed back version and more of a country bent uh, on on the song than it would kind of grow into and and, and evolve into. Yeah, I th- I love the album, um, and actually I just got the reissue on vinyl. I think about two or three days ago. It's, yeah. it sounds really really good, and it's it's one of those it's one of those ones kind of like to me like. Exile on Main Street, Dark Side. You put it on, and there's there's not any skippable material on it. You just let it ride. 
Yep. Yeah. And those are those are the best, right? Um, oh, completely the best. So they, like you said earlier, they they were a little bit more straightforward. You got Working Men's Dead, American Beauty. They have a, for sure an Americana twist to them. Yep. And then you're saying they're they're going into you know seventy seventy one and they're taking something like Sugar Magnolia, where and, and making it more of, for lack of a better word, a bigger song than really what it was how it was recorded. Yeah, and um, and that wasn't totally atypical, and they did that throughout their career. Um, Uncle John's band's a great example. I mean, you know, on the um, on um, on Working Man's Dead, it is a four and a half minute song. Um, in live, it can stretch out to eleven minutes, uh, and it would be a little more kind of elect, you know, more electric and, and a little bit rockier than than the album version. But a, another big thing in the transition of the Dead was. Um, was the declining health of Pigpen uh, in the early 70s. And Pigpen originally was the frontman. Everyone thinks of Jerry Garcia as the Grateful Dead frontman, and by and large, he, he was. Although, you know, Bob Weir was out in front of the stage as well doing his Bobby Cheese stuff. But um, that's a whole other podcast uh, subject completely. <laughs> but, uh, but Pigpen really fronted the band with his bluesy rock and roll from 65 to, say, 69. And... He quite to be quite frank, he drank he he drank himself into very very poor health, where he wasn't able to um, to kind of handle that that role in the band. He also played keyboards and harmonica, and as Pigpen's role um, was reduced in the band, Jerry uh, along with Robert Hunter and then Weir took over a larger and larger portion of the. Um, of the responsibility on, on a day-to-day basis or, you know, concert to concert basis. All right. Let me, let me cut in on Pigpen real quick. Yeah. So I'm um, hold show this book. I've been reading. It's called so many roads. Yeah. It's about the grateful dad. And so in, sp- in particular, I, I've been reading on 72 and it said that leading into that tour, uh, not only was Pigpen's health declining, but everybody around him said he seemed depressed and he, kind of thought he was being pushed out um, and his role greatly diminished. Go into, go into who came in for everybody who came in to make him feel that way. Cause I don't think it, he was being paranoid in, in believing that. No, no, he wasn't. I mean, so part of their musical transition into melodies and harmonies, they needed a more classic, classical um, pianist keyboards and enter Keith Godshaw stage right in October of 71. Uh, I believe October 19th was his uh, first show uh, with, with the band. And he was, you know, he played a grand piano on stage. And it it really drove a lot of the sound that, that they were working towards from 71 into 72. Also, his wife, Donna Jean, uh, who introduced Keith to Jerry, Joined the band as well in a vocal capacity. Yeah. Now yeah. she had she had recorded with Elvis Presley. She recorded at Muscle Shoals with like Aretha Franklin. So she brought a whole different dynamic to the band from an, as far as style a stylistic approach than than what they already had. Yeah, she's also from Al- she's from Alabama. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, but uh, yeah. So she started singing on select songs with the band maybe as early as late seventy one, but definitely. Uh, 72 early 72 before they went to over to europe and uh, her contributions to the band in i think net net were positive they had some um some speaker monitor issues that 
um, she was a little bit off pitch for for some of the some of the songs. But by '76, I think it was a really really great um, great compliment to the um, to the overall product. Um, and then and then like you said, he Pikmin played with a little more feel, a little you know a little sloppier, and Keith was the more of a trained musician, right? Yeah, right. And and Pikmin was super talented. Like, don't get me wrong. <laughs> But if you, I mean, if you go on on YouTube and you can pull up some clips of of, of Pigpen, um, you can see what I'm talking about. And also, speak going back to his health, when he was on that Europe '72 tour, he was easily easily 100 pounds less than he was three years prior. I mean, like he was gaunt. Yeah, did, did, I mean, did he did he have hepatitis? Uh, I think that's what he may have died of. Of okay. he died in March of '73. And I think that's what he eventually passed from. But he more or less just drank himself to death. Yeah, pickled himself. Yeah, and his and his his last show was June of seventy two. Um, it was their first show after they got back from Europe, and then he never played with them again. Mm. Was that the uh, Sunshine Daydream show? No, that was in Hollywood, I believe. Okay. Um, Sunshine Daydream was in August. All right. So <clears throat> when they when they get ready to to gear up to go to Europe is. American Beauty, their most recent album. Uh, it is their their most recent uh, studio album, but they had they were debuting a lot of new material in the couple months late seventy one and then into early seventy two, such as um, Bertha, Black Third Wind, Brown Eyed Women, um, Looks Like Rain, which. Um, is a very cool song on this Europe 72 tour because Jerry played pedal steel on it. And to my knowledge, that's the only time he ever played pedal steel live with the Grateful Dead or on, on that song for sure. Not, a, not an easy instrument to play from what I've been told. I, yeah. I have, I have no music. I love music. I have no musical talent. So I know you could, you could lock me in a room for 10 years with a guitar and Eric Clapton and I'll still be able to come out and just play GC and D. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, all right. So, you know, you're talking about, New songs. I know on this tour they debuted, uh, like I believe Jack Straw was the first time it was played live. Uh, uh, yeah, th- thereabouts are pretty close. So, kind of go into a little bit if you can the kind of the transition that the set list underwent in the last year or two before this, because I know you're talking about the uh, you know Dark Star and you know it, it became its own mon- you know monster and yeah. and then you know like you're saying they took Sugar Magnolia. And take which more or less a country song, and they make it to a song that they can jam with, and a little, you know, honestly, a little more of a rock feel. Kind of walk everybody through like the set list transition as they're getting ready to go to Europe, because they're definitely about to add a lot to the repertoire. Yeah, you know, in the in a couple of years leading up to the Europe '72 tour, the um the set list had definitely um t- undergone a uh, undergone a transformation. They became more songy. Uh, whereas like in 69, they were much shorter, but these songs would be quite a bit longer. Dark Star, uh, the other one would could run 25, 30 minutes each. Now, those two songs did run that, that long each on, on the 72 tour or the Europe 72 tour, but they just had more uh, more material to get into the show. So they played these like three and a half hour shows with, you know, like 30 songs in them. And whereas previously in the prior, you know, in the somewhat recent past, they had um, the set lists were more condensed. And the shows may, maybe not as long. I mean, still v- very uh, well played, but um, it was it was becoming more of a 
I guess, structured for the, in Grateful Dead terms, more of a structured set list. Um, by the same time, by the second set, you know, you could have some some pretty crazy things go on where you'd have a you know a hour long version of Dark Star. We'd have some drums intertwined in there, and then into Sugar Magnolia back into Dark Star, and uh, they would get pretty pretty creative and stretch out you know a major portion of that set into two or three songs. And they, they love throwing "Not Fade Away" in on that second set. Yeah, the not fade away, going down the road, feeling bad, back into not fade away was a <clears throat> was a, a very popular way to end the, the second set, and you'll never hear anything bad from me about that. Um, going down the road, feeling bad is, <clears throat> excuse me, one of probably my favorite Grateful Dead songs, although it's not written by the Grateful Dead, um, but it's uh, yeah, it's always a fun way to end the set. So you know, obviously, you and I were not alive when all this was going on, but. To my knowledge, I mean, the Stones played a decent amount of covers, especially early on, R and B and blues, you know, and things like that. But I feel like the Grateful Dead were the first ones to. Re- well, I guess the Almond Brothers did too, but they actually technically came on after the Grateful Dead. But where a decent part of their show was made up of cover songs, uh, even if it was songs that you you thought they wrote, like for the longest time. I thought they wrote "I Know You, Rider," but that's a, apparently a traditional, a traditional folk song. Yes. Um, so, I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong on that, but I mean, that, they seem to be like the first ones to just instead of being a special occasion, they routinely work other people's music into their sets. Oh yeah, I mean, they've been called the greatest cover band of all time, um, and you know, "Not Fade Away," "Going Down the Road," "Feeling Bad" is those are those are both covers. You know, Buddy Holly wrote uh, "Not Not Fade Away," um, and then. There's I'm, not, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Uh, the like they played a, they played me and Bobby McGee uh, probably every other every third show on the tour, and that was written by Chris Christopherson, made popular by Janis uh, Joplin. Although I think the Dead's version of me, me and Bobby McGee is just as good as Janis's. I think it's better. Yeah, I I, I think it's I think it's really really good. I mean, good good loving uh, was was not written by them, and that was like that could go 20 minutes routinely in a in a second set. Uh, me and my uncle was written by uh, they, they wrote uh, El Paso was written by Marty Robbins, um, which they which they played throughout their entire career. They played a traffic steer, Mister Fantasy, a good bit. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Um, so so they worked in a ton of a ton of covers. Uh, Cold Rain and Snow is another one that they played on the Europe Seven Two tour uh, frequently, and that is more. That I don't remember who wrote that, but that, that's a kind of a traditional folk song as well. But like any really good band. When they would work a cover in, they change it enough to make it their own. Yes, for for the most part. Yeah. Uh, all right. Go ahead. Yeah. No. Um, there's no question. And much like you know, say Widespread Panic or Fish, Latter Day, um, who play covers, you know, in every concert, it's definitely their own sound, and um, it, it's not um, it's not a, a carbon copy of the original artist's uh, version. And uh, but actually, while, while we're on songs, I just want to highlight um, a really good example of the Grateful Dead and how they matured in the two years leading up to this Europe '72 tour. So uh, the song "Playing in the Band" debuted February 18th, 1971, in um, Capitol Theater in Port Chester, New York. Very famous place. Yes, very famous. And it was originally live and um, and on uh, the studio version it was about a four minute, very punchy upbeat um quick song that was a bob bob weir vehicle that i i believe he wrote with with 
with John Barlow, who just passed away about a year ago. Um, he may have written with with, um, with with Hunter. I need to double, double check on that. But point is, is that when they were uh, when they, their first version they they played in on the Europe '72 tour was ten plus minutes long. They're starting to completely stretch it out. And by the end, their their last version of the tour uh, of playing in the band, which was um, I believe May 25th or 24th, it was almost 18 minutes long. And going forward. It held that 15 to 20 minute um, duration uh, up until up through 74, and in 74 they played one version that was 45 minutes long. So it was a uh, it was clearly a time of kind of growth and transition, and it was transitioning um, in the right direction, no question. All right. So one of the, <clears throat> the things that I found interesting reading this book, it talks about when they get ready to go to Europe. Their their entourage had really grown. Mm-hmm. Um, the people around them, uh, employees, girlfriends, you know, had Mountain Girl and all of that. But I think one of the interesting things that I've really realized getting ready for this episode was there's kind of this, uh, I guess you'd say, a myth about the dead that they're you know these peace loving you know ultra progressive hippies and stuff, and it really wasn't the case. Um, no. It talks about it in the book. They all like to shoot guns. Uh, oh, yeah. r- routinely would go shoot guns. Um, and their their crew was notorious for just beating beating the crap out of people. Like yeah. you didn't you didn't cross them. And one of the one of the stories in the book was they're playing uh, at uh, the Lyceum, and I think it's in London. Yep. And uh, you know who obviously you know who Betty Cantor Jackson is, right? Yep. Yeah. So she's, you know, wanting to get everything ready to record them, and, and these fans outside are being really loud. And one of the one of the the roadies just goes out there, and I mean, just beats the guy half to death. And yeah. so, uh, talk a little bit about that because you know, obviously, if you're a casual fan, you you think the Grateful Dead, you think a couple of things, you think tie dyes, you think uh, granola, and you think marijuana, but they really weren't the people kind of that they're portrayed to be were they no i mean so they were like it marin county where they kind of was their home base was very um undeveloped in the late 60s and it was more country like i believe mickey hart their drummer um well not during the tour but um before he took a hiatus from the band his family had a ranch in marin county and they ride horses and you know and shoot guns and and it was much more of a kind of a cowboy feel uh, to it, and yeah, and their crew was a bunch of kind of hardos that didn't take shit off anyone, and right. um, and to the point where they hired the uh, Hell's Angels for security regularly. That's regularly. what I, that's what I was about to say. All right, so you know you're, you're talking about that part of California, and you know they were kind of a product of the Hate Ashbury uh, district there in in San Francisco. Um, do you think a lot of the not stereotypes, but a lot of the ways we think about San Francisco, do you think a lot of that derived from the dead? Uh, yeah. I mean, it was a, it was, it was a lot bigger than the dead, right? They just happened to be there amongst with a lot of other bands that were, that were very kind of, um, visible at the time. And, but yeah, I mean, you have to realize though, a lot of like, um, the hate Ashbury thing going on at the time, a lot, a lot of people are coming in from other parts of the country and influence, right. 
uh, kind of what was going on. So it wasn't totally organically grown. I mean, it, it was, but there was a lot of people moved into there to try and, you know, kind of be a part of the movement and what was going on. I've, I've always thought it was funny. You know, we think about the yin and the yang, the give and the take. So, you know, 66, 67, they come from San Francisco and they come from this just, you know, kind of this utopia that are, at least that's what they is tried is portrayed as that's like 66 67 you flash forward 15 years and the same area gives birth to metallica megadeth exodus and testament um, right I, I i just think that you go from one one extreme it's a great example of you go from one extreme to the other i thought, always thought that was funny all right so like we said the entourage has really grown uh their number of employees has grown there's a lot of people around them. Now, uh, you said Mickey Hart, so I want to touch on that. At this yeah. point, he has left the band because his his father was their manager and basically robbed them blind. Is that right? Yeah, so um, so he, so Mickey was a kind of founding member of the band, and he left the band on <laughs> – the fact that I know this knowledge off the top of my head is a little scary, but he left them in February uh, 19th while they're doing that three-night run at, in Port Chester where they debuted – uh, playing the band among other songs after the band realized that he had embezzled, I think like a hundred thousand dollars, which is big money. I mean, it's, it's a lot of money to anyone, but it's a lot of it was huge money back then, especially yeah. for, for a band. And, uh, so he was kind of ashamed and, you know, and, uh, and he's just, he kind of checked out and, and he left the band in early 71. So they're, they're then left with just one drummer, Bill, uh, Kreutzmann. And that, so that kind of was another, uh, influence into their sound um, becoming um, becoming what it was in uh, in early 1972 when when they went to Europe and Mickey would eventually rejoin the band full time in uh, 1976 and when they went on their tour in June and um, which was I think a very very positive development. So when they get ready to go to Europe, Gage, um, who all, who all is in the band? Who all goes? So uh, so you've got Jerry. Um, Bob Weir, who is on rhythm guitar and vocals. Uh, you've got Phil Lesh, who's on bass. Uh, you've got uh, Bill Kreutzman, the drummer. Keith Godshaw is um, on piano, keyboards. Pigpen is on vocals, keyboards, and a harmonica. And you have um, Donna Jean Godshaw, who provides vocals on um, you know four or five different songs. So is that the biggest the band will ever be from a personnel standpoint, or does it get bigger uh, in like the 80s? Well, in the in the nineties, like Hornsby will play with them when they have Vince Welnick. That's about as big as it ever got. Yeah. Okay. All right. So they're going to go to Europe and do. I think we said these twenty-one shows. And by and large, this is their first true overseas trek. Correct. Uh, they did go to uh, France in seventy-one for a couple shows, but this is their true tour. Okay. Their first true tour. And so I've read that one of the reasons that they recorded this album to release it was to offset a lot of the costs because from what I can can tell the, the places they were playing were not not exactly large by any means. No, they they weren't huge. I think the largest place might have been the, the Strand Lyceum in London to close out the tour. But they but they they did play a couple festivals where, you know, there was other bands there and there was much larger crowds just because the overall scope of the event was was bigger. 
Uh, but yeah, but they played in, in some pretty small, um, some pretty small, you know, concert halls. And one interesting little anecdote is routinely, so a lot of places they went to, people were not native English speakers, and you know, English wasn't uh, as well spoken in in Europe then as as it is now. Uh, and so a lot of times when they would end their first set, which could run an hour and a half, the you know, and they would say, you know, we'll we'll be right back. The people wouldn't understand what they're saying. They get up and leave and, and not come back, not realizing a second set was going to occur. Wow. And, and so if you listen to some of the recordings, the band makes like extra, they go to extra lengths to say, don't leave. We will be right back in 20 minutes. More music to come. We got to go reload the pipe. <laughs> yes. Um, so I really think that one of the reasons this is, these recordings are so beloved is they were playing in places small enough to where Betty Cantor Jackson could really work her magic and you don't lose a lot of the things like, you know, recording something in a, in a stadium. I mean, that's gotta be a nightmare. And I think it adds a lot to the fidelity of, of, of these recordings because they sound so good and so crisp and there's very little crowd noise um, yeah. to, to, to the extent that honestly, when I bought this album, I don't think I really put two and two together. Like I said, it was very early on when I started liking the dead, liking the dead that I put two and two together. It was all live because you just very rarely hear the crowd and the, the, the fidelity on these recordings is just amazing. And to think that was recorded in 1972 and here we are 27 years later and it sounds a lot better, honestly, than a lot of live albums you hear that are recorded today. Yeah, I, one thing I would caution, though, this is really, you know, personal preference, whether you like kind of a, the soundboard recordings with very little crowd noise or you like kind of a matrix recording that has a soundboard and overlays an audience recording, which is which which I, I like sometimes. That said, so the Europe 72 release, you need to be careful because this went this was heavily remastered. Like, for instance, the the, the version of Jack Straw that you probably love track four which is from the May 3rd show in, uh, in Paris that like I I've listened to the actual kind of like original soundboards, the version on Europe 72 sounds nothing like it. It sounds like they were in a studio. So right? they, so they went in and sweetened everything up. Oh, like massively. Okay. And I'm not saying it's not good. I mean, it's great. It, like, it's just not, if you went to the show, that's not what you heard. Right. Which I mean, is a dirty little secret of the record business. 99% of live albums you hear people go back in and, Oh, yeah. uh, you know, doctorate and, you know, you have a missed note here or somebody's off key or whatever. Yeah. Um, all right, Gage. So kind of tell us what goes on on this tour, this, these 21 dates over six weeks. Yeah. So um, I guess, I guess I'd start with their, their travel arrangements. So they had a very, I guess, unique, uh, they, they had travel They had two buses that they took around uh, when they were in continental Europe um, or and also maybe on on, on the English islands and they had two buses and they're nicknamed the Bolo bus and the Bozo bus and basically the Bozo bus was for everyone who wanted to seriously party and the Bolo bus was more fun kind of like people who wanted to chill out or had families and so the Bozo bus was like you know just prison rules it was up up for grabs and any anything goes and the Bolo bus obviously was a little more chilled out so you had kind of that d- dynamic going on. And um, and they and they started the tour in London um, at um, at the we- at Wembley Empire Pool, 
kind of to get their um, their legs underneath them, and and um, and then they they played um, a festival in Newcastle, England, roughly four days later on April 11th. Now, one of my personal favorite shows from the tour is April 14th in uh, in Copenhagen, uh, Denmark, and that has a little bit of something for everyone. It has um, a great first set, a great version of me and uh, me and Bobby McGee. Uh, it also has, I, in my opinion, one of the best versions of Dark Star, um, where it uh, it go it melts into Sugar Magnolia and then into into Good Love in for another twenty minutes. Like I think, like for me, I think that the April fourteenth show is a great gateway show into the tour and and the Grateful Dead because the first set you get a lot of kind of up tempo. Uh, newer songs they had a lot of um they're putting a lot into like black throated wind w- was very new um that was a barlow weir uh song and one of one of my favorites and uh, then it has a first set playing in the band as well that uh that, that is really good but then like the the second set opens with trucking and then uh you've got it looks like rain with jerry on pedal steel and then a 30 minute dark star which some people will be some people might they look at a dark star 30 minutes long they might get turned off especially in our um, attention deficit disorder uh, culture nowadays. But it, you will not get tired because they take you through up and down and sideways. And it is a, uh, it's a fantastic version. All right, let's, let's, let's take a little sidebar here about Dark Star. It yeah. started to kind of fall off the set list after this tour, right? Uh, it really, well, no, it, it really fell off um, starting in 74. They, okay. they played Played it extensively in 72 and 73. 74, they played it a few times. And then um, 76, 77, it wasn't played. 78, it wasn't played until New Year's Eve, the closing of Winterland in San Francisco. And then after 78, the next time it was played, I believe, was 83. All right. For those that, that are out there that don't understand the significance of Dark Star and exactly what it was, why don't you explain that? You know, I... Darkstar is kind of like their um, magnum, magnum opus, and it kind of was birthed out of those acid tests. And what's interesting about the song is, like, it'll take you through three or four different musical themes throughout the course, throughout its duration. And a lot of times, you wouldn't hear lyrics for the first ten minutes, and but but you wouldn't even notice that ten minutes. It, it felt like two minutes had gone by before you started hearing uh, lyrics and. It was, I guess their anthem might be a strong um, description, but it was definitely their trademark song and something that no one else was doing at the time when they first started playing it. It was very, very unique, and people were drawn to it, maybe because they had taken you know five hits of really good um, acid. But uh, it had it had grown to the point um, in popularity that it was you know searched out and chased. Uh, for by their by their growing legion of fans and you know if i could sum up um you know a way to describe it besides magnum opus i would just say kind of like a musical journey that each fan had their own experience with okay cool so um so you said it was april 14th was your favorite show uh, that is one of my favorite shows from the tour, just because you get a little bit of everything. And 
Yeah, I, I, I think it's just, and there's really good um, soundboard versions uh, that are easily found out there. I mean, I know you're not big into, into streaming, but Spotify, um, you're able to, to grab it on there. No, I, 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 I stream, but that's what I'm saying. I'm looking at it right now yeah. uh, on there, and I don't see April 14th. Um, on Spotify? Yeah. Um, but well, it depends on if you have Spotify Premium. or if I, you have the, have... I have the Premium. Okay. Um, um, I tell you what, I'm going to look for it. Um, yeah, it's, it's there it's after there. the show, and I'm gonna I'm gonna put a link to that uh, on our social media. Uh, we'll call it Gage's Picks. Yes, songs I like to listen to. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right. So, <laughs> so instead of Dick's Picks, uh, it's Gage's Picks. Um, all right, Gage. So they they get over there and uh, they're playing to smaller venues, and they've got a big entourage. Yeah. Um. Talk to us about the songs that kind of for more or less made their live debut while they were over there. Yeah, so songs that were very, very new were Brown Eyed Women, Ramble on Rose, uh, Black Throated Wind. Um, let's see what else. Uh, Sugary, which, you know, turned it had, you know, really became a monster song for them. Uh, those were uh, Tennessee Jed, um, which I personally hate. And I, fa- I fast forward through it every single time. I know, you know, some people call me a heretic, but <laughs> well, I just Te- do not like that song. Teach his own. That's why they make chocolate and vanilla ice cream. And why my grandfather yeah. said I eat strawberry. There you go. There yeah. you go. Uh, Looks like rain uh, was, was also very new. Um, so those, I think those, um, those kind of were the bulk of the new songs. I mean, that's like seven or eight songs that they were, they're trotting out on a uh, on a reg- uh, on, on a regular basis that where they were just kind of working into. Uh, also, Deal, uh, which was off Garcia's solo album. Now, now Deal and Sugary were both uh, Garcia solo album songs, right? Yes, they were not ever officially released on a studio album by the Dead, to my knowledge. Okay. Kind of. uh, yeah, they were off um, Garcia's solo album, which I would highly recommend listening to. So they were, I mean, and, and those songs more or less were kind of, well, in later years were kind of standard first set fare. But if you listen to them play it, I mean, oh, it's, it's super crisp and they're just really, really tight and playing it really, really well. All right. Talk, talk to people for a few minutes about first set versus second set with the Grateful Dead, because there are certain songs you never saw in the second set and vice versa. Yeah. I mean... Really, the only songs that you would not see in the first set versus the second set would be the other one and Dark Star. And the other one and Dark Star would be... I don't know, you know if I've ever seen Not Fade Away in the first set. Uh, yeah, that would be super rare as well. Okay. Um, yeah, from 72 on, it was only in, in the second set. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm just I'm looking at uh, the set list from April 11th, 1972, and they had a version of the other one that was 39 minutes. And that, and that comprised uh, that was one song of six six songs in the in the uh, second set. Uh, so it would um, it would take you play it would, it would go a lot of different directions and then it would, it would typically melt into a uh, a slower uh, maybe um, a slower Jerry song at the time because at the time Jerry and Bobby would kind of switch um, kind of switch off songs in, in the set list. There'd be a Jerry song and then a Bobby song and then go back and forth. Which vocal? vocal which vocalist do you prefer jerry or bob oh uh, man i go back and forth like i was like i really loved bobby songs like a few years ago and now i'm more jerry but like 
I don't know. It's like I said earlier, it really depends on what your mood is. Right now, gun to head, I would probably say um, Jerry, although he was kind of – he kind of caught some flack for the quality of his vocals early, um, early in in his career. His kind of voice was thin, and but um, I, I think it I think it worked in general. All right, so like we said, they're over there for six weeks. What are some of the changes that you saw musically they undergo from their first show to their last show? Because I've heard people talk about there was a lot of growth. Yeah, no, there, there there definitely was a lot of growth, and I think that like I mentioned earlier, the playing in the band. You know, their first version was 10 minutes long. Their last version of the tour was closer to 18 minutes long. And they were kind of growing in, into these songs. And um, I also think that, um, you know, with Pigpen's reduced role in the band, they were kind of forced to um, to kind of grow up and and mature, I guess, for the lack of, of, a, of a better expression. And I think, like, you know, Sugar Magnolia became a very different song than it was originally, quote-unquote, intended to be. Um, although, although speak, bring up Pigpen um, again, one song that I would tell you to, by no, you know, definitely seek out and listen to on that tour that he sounded great on was Two, Two Souls in Communion. And that can be found on you know a bunch of different it's shows. The, it's the it's on the it's a bonus song on the on the Europe seventy two reissue. All right, yeah, like it's it's an awesome song, and it's it's super underrated and actually fairly unknown amongst casual Great Grateful Dead fans. I mean, hardcore people like myself, you know, obviously know it, but uh, many many people don't know it that well. Uh, but I would highly highly recommend um, seeking out versions of that. No question. So let's talk about the set list for a second. <clears throat> um, were their set list in set in stone, or did they just kind of call things on the fly? Um, you know, they had. I think they had a loose um, idea of what they were going to do, and, and obviously, some of it was based on what they played the previous night. Very rarely would they play Dark Star two two shows in a row. They're kind of like this. The, the second set centerpiece would always either be the other one or dark star typically on this tour and they wouldn't play one of the songs two shows in a row um but uh, i think that i think that that was kind of a definite decision that, that they would make um and in terms of kind of their you know i guess uh, flexibility in uh, in what they're playing i think it was um the highest maybe in kind of post Dark Star, post the other one, and the last third of the second set is where things could maybe, uh, if you could, could be changed on, on the fly. Um, yeah, because, you know, um, they, they were kind of the, one of the first ones to do, you know, segues. And they would start a song, and sometimes they may go into two or three other songs specifically. I think, was it Scarlet Begonias that they did that on so much? Or is it... Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, you yeah. know, it, it may be the next set before they go into like the sunshine daydream stuff, right? Um, yeah, so later in the seventies, they started playing with um, with uh, Sugar Magnolia, and then how they would transition to sunshine daydream. It wouldn't be immediately; it might be at the end of the set or two, or two or three songs later. Uh, but Scarlet Begonias was kind of tied to Fire in the Mountain for many years, and then they started to switch that up in the eighties, and they would. And they would go scrub begonias into um, you know a variety of different songs. All right, Gage. So, bef- is there anything else you want to talk about before we start dis- discussing specific songs? Yeah, um, I think the biggest thing for me is that their quality of 
the quality of playing, in my opinion, was never tighter and never better than on this tour. And some people will disagree. Oh, Spring 77. Yeah, it, it was it was really good. That was more polished sound. This is a little, a little more raw and then then spring 77 but if you listen if you i don't know i it's um it's extremely tight the band so the age of the band at the time i think is relevant uh jerry was 29 bobby was 24 lesh was maybe like 30 kreutzman was maybe late 20 so they're all still relatively young in 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 a musical perspective band perspective and so they were still kind of um they're just really hard charging and very serious about their band and um, and and the, and the songs and their new songs that they were um, they were trotting out. All right, so um, we're gonna talk about specifically about the release Europe seventy two, which is uh, is select songs from the twenty one shows. Now, the yeah. first thing you notice whenever used to when people would go and buy albums, album cover. Yes. Uh, <laughs> You know, the dead are have some of the great album covers, you know, Steal Your Face and Live Dead and Dead Set and all of that. Um, American Beauty is a great album cover. Um, it's basically a cartoon. It's a guy eating a uh, ice cream cone and he missed his mouth and put it on his head. And on, yeah. the, and on the back, it, hey, Gage, I think that would make a nice fraternity shirt. What do you think? I, I think that would. That's a good idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, is uh, the uh, pot of gold, uh, rainbow, the boot uh, over the earth. Um, great album art. That's the yeah. first thing that, that, that sticks out. Uh, very good album art. All right, Gage. So the first song is Cumberland Blues. And my quick take on this version is some of the best harmonies of the Grateful Dead's career are evident uh, on this song. Yeah, they um so they debuted Cumberland Blues. I want to say in 1970 or so, um, and that is um, that was part of the transition away from their kind of primal, more raw sound they had in the late 60s. Um, it's uh yeah, I mean it's a it's it's a really good song. It's not like one of my favorites um by them, but it's a um it's it's a fun song. And Phil Phil sings on that as well. He, his voice is a little more apparent. His voice, which sucks in my opinion, he actually stopped singing in '74 for, you know, maybe 15 years. Um, that Did he, was, didn't he sing "Box of Rain"? He did sing "Box of Rain." Okay. Yeah, um, which is, I mean, it sounds good on the album, but live, it, it doesn't sound great. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, so um, his voice is a little more apparent on that song. So the second song is one of my favorite Grateful Dead songs. He's gone. It's where they get the, the line about "Steal Your Face." Um, yeah. Uh, I, do you think the song is about uh, Jerry Garcia? Uh, no, it's not. It's actually about, um, Lanny, um, Lanny Hart, Mickey Hart's, uh, Mickey Hart's, uh, father. Okay. Reason I asked that, uh, um, you know, are you familiar with the Pearl Jam song, Off He Goes? No. All right. It's kind of a slow song. It's, uh, it's, it's Eddie Vedder describing himself to other people, how he's a great friend to people for a little bit. And then he just, he's gone when he sees something better. And like, he admits that about himself. And so I kind of always thought this was about like Jerry Garcia being kind of a, you know, this free spirit and loner and move on from one thing to the other. But now that you tell me it's about Mickey Hart's father, it, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, it does make perfect sense. And actually I'm surprised we haven't brought up he's gone yet because that he's gone. Isn't, wasn't, they played so many great versions uh, on this tour and it's one of the newer songs as well. I think it was, um, 
I think the first, yeah, the, the first time they played it was April 17th uh, on, on the uh, tour. And it is, uh, yeah. And, and that's uh, that's a song that remained in their, in their set list until, um, until their final show. Um, and it's, uh, it's one of my one of my favorites, but yeah, it was written um, about Lenny Hart. Yeah, so it was recorded uh, in Amsterdam on yep. the tour. All right, the next one, one more Saturday night, kind of one of the Grateful Dead's uh, feel good tunes. Yeah, it's a rocker. Um, it's uh, Bobby gets his time to shine, and uh, it's yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's there's not much to really say about it other than the fact it's a great set closer. Um, and I never really gave it a, a lot of thought besides that, you know? Um, but it's a, um, I'm surprised it came in. They put it at number three in the track listing, but it's, um, yeah, it would typically show up end of second set or in an encore slot. And this particular version was recorded at the Lyceum in England, which it appears after looking at it, probably about half the songs came from that venue. Uh, I think that was the last. I think that was the last one before they came back. Uh, yes. Well, they played three shows in a row there before they came back. So, Which would make uh, sense if you're gonna uh, record a band if they've been playing six weeks straight. You know, toward the end, it's probably when they'll be firing on all cylinders. Yeah. All right. So the next one, I, like I said, is what got me into the band. Thanks to Gage Patterson's couch, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jack Straw. Um, <clears throat> In my, I mean, like I said, I, I'm just a slightly buff casual fan, but in my opinion, this is the definitive version of this song. Uh, when I listen to it played in other eras, uh, I always compare it to the Europe 72. Um, just, a, just, just a great song on so many fronts. Um, Bruce Hornsby played it, uh, you know, when he came into the band, and then he, you know, he re- released a version of it on an album. Um, it's just, uh, it's like I said, it's my favorite Grateful Dead song and it's the one that got me into them and, uh, I'm never tired of listening to it. Yeah. It's like, it's like where the Grateful Dead make the transition from, you know, their, their primal days into more of, um, like storytelling and songs. And, um, this was, so this was written, Robert Hunter wrote, um, the word, the lyrics and Weir wrote the, the music, which was, this is one of only two or three songs that they wrote together and um, so Weir and, and Garcia would trade off singing uh, verses, uh, and sometimes um, they would, it would be different. But uh, by the um, by the you know I guess mid late seventies, typically um, typically Bobby would start out and, and Jerry would would finish. But it's a it's a fabulous song. I mean, it's going to be a, a mid first set song, and you. Um, you can't um, you can't go wrong with it. Well, maybe a little uh, misogynistic lyrics in there, but um, I don't think it's that big a deal. Um, definitely sounded different in the late seventies compared to on this tour. Oh yeah, uh, if you listen to the recording. All right, we have our first, I guess, true cover of the set. Hank Williams Jr. song "You Win Again." I can do without this one. Um. Yeah, it's okay. I mean, it's um. You know, Pig Pigpen is it's one of Pigpen's songs that that he that he gets involved with on the tour. Um, it's um, you know it's it's bluesy. It's I don't say I don't say throwaway song, but it's not a song I really revisit all that often. So we're in agreement on that. Yeah. All right. So the next, we're not going to break this up because it never was broken up in these days. China Cat Sunflower and I Know You Rider. China Cat Sunflower, one of the originals that, that they actually had a studio recording 
of, and it segued into the traditional traditional uh, folk song, I Know You Rider. Uh, if Jack Straw is my favorite Grateful Dead song, then this pairing is, is for sure in my top five. Yeah, China Cat Sunflower, I Know You Rider um, is a Grateful Dead staple. They, um, they played it, it seemed like, almost every show. Um, for you know four or five years and then they didn't play it for about five years they and then they brought it back after their closing shows at winterland in october 74 they then played it for the first time in december 29th 1977 um they brought it back after three years or so but yeah i mean it's a um so they they wrote china cat and then they 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 came up with a um, or they kind of wrote or um, improvised a really kind of nice transition into I know your writer that they would drop into typically with a large um, bass bomb from uh, Phil Lesh and really China Cat I know your writer changed quite a bit as the band got older and I know your writer was a became a really big song like you know very kind of like um, soaring vocals from from Garcia and Weir. Into the late into the late seventies and in in the um, into the eighties. Great harmonies on that. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, like we said, that that one worked its way into the set for a long time. Um, the next one is "Brown Eyed Woman." This is another song that I, when I listen to other versions, I compare it to Europe seventy two. Yeah, I mean it's um, it, it is a great version because they're like I said before they were so tight on this tour and this was a new song and they were um they were really putting their all into it and i it, it's it's one of my favorite first set grateful dead songs and um on an aside i went i probably i'm sure i mentioned this on our my morning jacket podcast but i went down to riviera maya for my morning jacket um trip and where they played at the hard rock cafe three shows or the resort and bob weir actually showed up for two of the shows because the, whatever the, the incarnation of the dead at the time, they were there the week prior and they came out and did brown eyed women with my morning jacket. Uh, of course we forgot the lyrics that a song he's been playing for 45 years, but uh, it was still, it was still fun to see. And it being one of my, one of my kind of favorite first set, um, grateful dead songs as well. One, um, a song that puts me in a good mood whenever I hear it. Yeah. I mean, it's like you, you can sing along, um, it's a, uh, it's got a, it's got a nice, um, pace to it. And it's a, um, I don't know. It, it just, um, uh, it does, it puts you in a good spot. All right. The next is another Elmore. It's a song. It's an Elmore James cover, uh, hurts me too. Uh, if I skip a few on this album, this is one of them. Oh, you are a pig pen hater. Uh, well, I like Mr. Charlie. We'll get to that yeah. in a minute. Yeah. I mean, hurts me too is pretty good. It just, um, I think that by this time, Pig's vocals just weren't there because he weighed about 10 pounds. And so he couldn't really muster the strength that I think he had previously. And, you know, it's, um, it's, it's not a bad song. I, I think it's, yeah, I mean, I, I, I like it. It's, it's a good cover. It, it, it fits pig because it's a, um, it's, it's very bluesy, but right. they were, but they were moving away from that at, at the time. All right. Ramble on Rose. Um, another, another stellar, stellar track. Uh, on this album, uh, and this was debuted on this tour, right? Yes, it was, and I love Ramble on Rose. It's a, um, I actually, I didn't love it initially. When I first saw this on Grateful Dead, I'm like, ah, it's kind of, for me, it was kind of like a, a th- like a Tennessee Jet for me, like a throwaway song, but after watching on YouTube them play it, I had a new appreciation for it, so it was kind of weird. So 
I had I, I gained appreciation for it more visually than I did audibly. But then going forward, you learned to like, appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, that's I put Ramble and Rose in the same bucket. Excuse me, as Brown Eyed Women. Okay. Yeah. All right. I can see that. All right. So if Truckin's their most famous song, that and Touch of Grey, I would say the next song is their third most famous, Sugar Magnolia. And as we talked about, it was originally recorded on American Beauty, more of a country song. Uh, not right. so much by the time they get on this tour, uh, became something that you saw on the set list routinely for a long time. Uh, even casual music fans are going to know Sugar Magnolia. Yeah, I mean, we we talked about the song quite a bit already. Um, it's you know, it, you know, Bobby gets to do his thing, and <coughs> it's um, it's a lot of fun, and it's it's a great set, set closer. But yeah, it isn't. It's it's noteworthy for the way that it um, it evolved into more of a rocking set closer from a um, a more countryish version on on the album on, on American Beauty. All right, to prove to you, I'm not a pickpin hater. <clears throat> I love Mr. Charlie. Uh, yeah. And this would be one of the last times he would ever sing that song, and they pretty much retired it after he left, right? Yes, uh, to my knowledge, they they did, and and yeah, Mr. Charles is a, a great song. Um, it's kind of a, it's, it's a little peppy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it, it's a fun first set uh, thing to do, and I, like you know, I don't think that um, I think there are versions that are um, older versions that might be more worth your time searching out as opposed to Europe 72. And um, Chris Robinson does a great cover of this. If you ever want to go online and and watch him do it. Um, The next song, uh, I'm just, I'm surprised you hate this song as much as you do, but uh, it's Tennessee Jet. I love it. Yeah. I don't like it, man. I I just think it's like, I don't like the lyrics. I don't like the, I, I don't, I don't like the chorus. Um, I, I don't know. It just it just that doesn't do it for me. One one of the few songs Grateful Dead have written that just doesn't do it for me, and it's an automatic skip. I mean, it's it's one of the songs, Gage, where you can sing along with them and sing out of tune, and it still be kind of all right. I know, and I, I sing out of tune really, really well. <laughs> that <laughs> I, was uh, that was what I was going for. Yeah. Uh, yes, as evidenced by my cover of uh, Prince at uh, at uh, in college at the karaoke. Um, I think I was booed off the stage. <laughs> But I digress. Uh, yeah, I just, just I don't know. I, I, I just don't like it. Uh, I mean, it's I know a lot of people love it, um, but it just doesn't do it for me. All right. The next, we have Grateful Dead's uh, Their Stairway to Heaven. It's uh, Truckin', their most famous song uh, written about a drug bust down in New Orleans uh, on American Beauty. Um, I love the song. I, I will say, though, that I feel like they dragged this one out about five minutes too long. Um on this uh it's what the you know what they're most known for you know it's got the line in it what a long strange trip it's been that's a common tagline anytime you see anything with the grateful dead uh, like i said off american beauty but uh uh one that they played a lot in this era and they played in the second set usually yeah i mean i think the fact that they put a 13 minute version of trucking on the europe 72 um album i think speaks to where the band was headed because in 73 and 74 trucking became a major jam vehicle where they would they would take it for 15 minutes and then go into a a totally separate jam that was that was something totally not trucking and then fade into like stella blue and uh 
I, I think that that just indicates where the band was heading, kind of away from Mr. Charlie and away from Hurts Me Too and towards the the extended, um, fully explored version of Trucking. And that's going to lead us to Epilogue and Prelude. Um, just kind of two little jams there at the end. Um, what are your thoughts on those? Yeah, I mean they're 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 interesting. They're indicative of the of the time period. I don't spend too much time on them, um, but I think the last song on the um, on the list, "Morning Dew," is which is also not a Grateful Dead song. That's also a cover. cover. That um, I can't remember who wrote it, but it's actually Bonnie Dobson and Tim Rose. Okay, it's also about it's about um, nuclear war and the aftermath of like like the day after it, if you will, and it's a. Um, I think the best. This is a. I think great versions of Morning Dew. I think some of the best versions would be in set from '74 and through '77. Uh, Morning Dew is a is an amazing song. Like Morning Dew is one of my wife's favorite songs um, by the by the Grateful Dead, which she told me that recently, which was actually a bit surprising. Yeah, um, yeah this version is so so to me. The the best version I've ever heard was Cornell '77. Yeah, uh-huh. that 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 gets a lot of 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 attention, and, and as well it should. My personal, my personal, my personal favorite version is uh, June eighteenth, nineteen seventy four, at Freedom Hall in Louisville, Kentucky, where it was a standalone encore. Hmm. So that says something. Um, Do you have you ever listened to that Day of the Dead Day of the Dead album? I have. Yeah, it's it's pretty good. I mean, there's some hits and there's some misses on there. The, um, na- I, the Nationals version of Morning Dew makes the hair stand up on my arms. It's so good. I probably need to revisit that because I remember that you highlighted it to me. This is when I mean, this is when I was still living in uh, Chicago. Uh, I remember listening to it on my on my back patio, and you and you told me to listen to the Nationals version of, of Morning Dew. I remember it being good, but I haven't listened to it in like a long time. I find like there's very few bands out there that I think do justice to the Grateful Dead. And if I'm listening to the Grateful Dead, I'm listening to the Grateful Dead, right? Right. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I feel like. And sometimes when people cover them, it's just the like they're going to cover Truckin' or Sugar Magnolia or Scarlet Begonia. Yeah. I know, uh, uh, actually, I think Jimmy Buffett does a pretty good version of Scarlet Begonia. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I'm kind of with you. I like it when I, I guess I prefer people not to do it. But that Day of the Dead, I mean, yeah, it's like 60 songs. I'm like, yeah, there's some on that are just horrific, horrific. Yeah. But then there's some that are just really, really good. Uh, Wilco and Bob Weir do St. Stephen. Uh, yeah. Jim James does Candyman, which, yep. uh, you know, I know you're a, you're a disciple of his, uh, yes. but, but the version of by the national, you know, they're a band that's so good and they know how to restrain themselves and they, they really restrain themselves on this. And just, you know, you listen to the lyrics of it and it's just, it's, it's haunting. Um, yeah. Yeah. I would, I would, I would agree. And before I forget this, um, in terms of covers, one one group that did a really really good cover um, of "He's Gone" is the infamous String Dusters, and they are a traditional bluegrass band, and they're pretty pop. They're they're very well regarded in bluegrass circles. I believe they won a Grammy for their latest album, um, maybe one or two years ago. They do a great version of "He's Gone" that I would highly recommend your listeners to search out. They could probably find it on Spotify if they. Um, just do a basic search of infamous string dusters. And that would make Jerry Garcia happy. Uh, uh, yes, that would take Jerry back to his roots. And I think he would that definitely put a smile on his face. All right, so that that closes the actual songs on the uh, 
physical on, on that specific album um gauge so they they come back um back to america and they play what some people consider to be their greatest show uh the sunshine daydream in uh in oregon uh, yeah are, are you a fan of that show yeah i mean i don't see how you couldn't be i mean it's uh What's more, what's more interesting about the show that you know, I think your listeners will kind of like dig is that it was um, late August, August 27th, and it was in Venita, Venita, Oregon, and it was super hot, like 100 degrees. 104. So, okay, 104. And there, um, and it was like it was like a full-on hippie festival, like you know, hippie families, kids, and like I, I heard the water supply got dosed. Um, and people are passing out. And if you listen to the to the recording, I mean, they uh, like there's lost kids all over the place. And 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 Ken Kesey, I think, is the uh, the guy in the PA is like, oh, there's two kids over here on stage right, come and claim them. And it's like we're bringing fresh water, blah blah blah. But it was like super hot in the band. The band in a logistical snafu was actually facing the setting sun, which doesn't make a ton of sense. Um, and, and they're playing during the hottest part of the day. It was like probably six or seven uh, it, was, it was still sunny out when they were playing you can look up pictures but the highlights from that show which you need to search out are the playing version of playing in the band which is arguably the best ever and also the version of dark star uh which melts into el paso which is was a very rare combo and that dark star is amazing it the transition into el paso is 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 worth the time alone and i I mean, also oh, the version of Bird Song is amazing. Um, I uh, that's that's another great song. You know, Bird Song was is about um, Janis Joplin, and because she had recently passed away, um, I think the year prior. And it's and it's also a three set song, a three set show, because they had to take a couple of breaks because it was so hot. Uh, and there's also uh, some video you can find on on YouTube under I would just I would um, type in the search bar "Sunshine Daydream" and you'll catch probably half of it or so. Yeah, when you when you research like the greatest dead shows, that one comes up, Cornell 77 comes up a lot. Yeah. Um and, and and those and those are two shows that actually share a lot of the same songs and you can listen you can listen to Cornell 77 and see how much those songs changed in just a 5-year span. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, 77 spring the dead had a much more polished live sound. They had two. They had two drummers. Mickey was back. Uh, they had some new material. They had you know external influences as music was kind of changing in the country. A little, a little more disco going on. Um, but yeah, that just speaks to their, to their overall talent and their ability to reinvent themselves on a um, on a very short term basis. And also while we're on a, um, the show in Venita, Oregon, the version of "Sing Me Back Home" originally written by uh, Merle Haggard is amazing and donna um donna kind of duets with uh with jerry and that will yeah that that that'll pull you in no question yeah it's a classic country song um everybody their brother has covered it um well gage so um kind of as we kind of book in this is is there anything else you want to go into before i hit you with some surprise rapid fire questions rapid fire okay um you know, for, for, for your listeners who um, maybe are casual Grateful Dead fans and are looking to kind of um, immerse themselves more, I think the Europe 72 tour is a 
great place to start. And there's a lot of readily available um, recordings on Spotify or even on the uh, Relisten app, uh, which has a lot of a lot of versions of, of shows. And I think that you're you're seeing a band very close to their the, their their peak of their powers. I think personally, I think they peaked maybe in '73, '74, but this is when they were still on the ascent. And it's a it's a very I think special time in the history of the band that I'm not I'm not sure anyone's ever replicated since. Do you think they deserve to be on the Mount Rushmore of American bands? Uh, I mean, there's no question. Okay. I mean, I mean, who else is up there? Uh, I mean, it's this is where I like we did a whole episode on this, and this is where it gets kind of hairy because I kind of want to like when I do that, I kind of want to try to represent, you know. Every genre, like I put REM on there. Yeah, yeah, I think well, REM is in the conversation. I, I put Aerosmith on there. I mean, they're, mm. they're the to me, they're the American version of the Rolling Stones. They're still together, all the original members. Um, you can't discount what Van Halen did as far as influence. Yeah, uh, the Grateful Dead. You know, you're gonna kind of have a your jam band head on there that's it's them without question then were the Hammond brothers but I, I i'm gonna lean grateful dead uh yeah. over the Hammonds. yeah so i i think i think most people if you looked at it objectively and, and you know and take kind of you know your favorites out of it you, they you have to put them on there because they really were a slice of american pie uh yeah you know like we said jerry garcia was a very i mean i've heard he's a better banjo player than he was a guitar player Yes, um, you know, so it, it, bluegrass with stuff with pig pen was more bluesy. You got completely psychedelic stuff. You had country music. You had, you know, not fade away. That's Buddy Holly. I mean, that doesn't get more original rock and roll than that. So yeah, I, I, I wouldn't. I, I, yeah, I think I think they have to be. Yeah, I, I, I agree also, with you. Yeah, also like if you look at their collaborations later in their career, Branford Marcellus. Uh, did a few sit-ins on their spring 1990 tour where he pl- played uh, eyes of the world with them and he's on sax and it's amazing. But I, that's another, another show I would, you know, everyone should, should uh, search out. I believe it was, um, three Man, if you could only somehow monetize this gauge, I know, right? <laughs> uh, no, it's like, it's like, uh, Somebody at work asked me one time who won the, you know, 1994 sugar, I mean, Super Bowl, And I immediately wrapped, you know, spouted it off, and I was like, yeah, "It's it's a curse. It's not a blessing. It's a curse." It's a curse. You don't know what to do with it. It's, it's I guess it's like like I, I like my history degree. It's like interesting anecdotes at cocktail parties. Right. Right. So All right, Gage. Cool. So I'm going to give you some rapid fire questions about the Grateful Dead, and I don't want you to think about them. I just want your first thing that comes across the chalkboard inside your head. All right. Favorite Grateful Dead original. Eyes of the world. Favorite Grateful Dead cover? Me and Bobby McGee. Favorite Grateful Dead show? Um, uh, I'm going to go... I'm going to go with 827.72, just so we just talked about it. Okay. Subject. All right. Favorite member of the Grateful Dead? Jerry. It used to be Bobby, but it's definitely Jerry. Least favorite member of the Grateful Dead? Um, probably, 
this is going to be very divisive. Probably Brent Midland. All right, so he played keyboards in the 80s and the 90s, right? Uh, first show was April 22nd, 1979. <laughs> <laughs> You're killing me, man. I know. You're killing me. All right, favorite year for the dead. Okay, so this is this is a hard one. Um, I'm going to go with 73 only because you have additional new material being introduced, such as Eyes of the World and, and Weather Report Suite. <clears throat> All right, this is a two-part question, and it's going to be a lot, my last one for you. All right. The thing that annoys you the most about Grateful Dead fans and the things you like, the thing you like the most about the Grateful Dead community. So uh, what annoys me the most, most about Grateful Dead fans, which I think is actually is being put in the rearview mirror, is there is the view is like some of them kind of play the role of Grateful Dead fan being like some strung-out wook, you know, living, you know, on the, on the sidewalk, right? But in, but in reality, most fans are upstanding individuals. But this, but the stereotype of the fan and some of those that play up to it. Okay. What's your favorite thing about the community? Favorite thing about the community is like you have all different types of people um, who who like the music, and it and it and it brings people together. When you when you realize someone else likes the Grateful Dead, you have this like instant connection where then it can you don't know where that connection can go to you know just other interests or or other other endeavors and then the conversation kind of takes life of its own yeah i was reading this week doing some research for this apparently ann coulter is a huge grateful dead fan it's been to like 60 shows really yeah uh there's a whole uh piece that she wrote i'll have to find it send it to you but it's it's basically um you know she going through law school and everything and they would they would go see shows and she's been to like 60 and she, when she lost count, she said, so that makes her a bad deadhead cause she doesn't know the exact number, but it's like North of 60 and she still has her old cassettes that she listens to. Um, really? Yeah. So I think, you know, that definitely breaks the stereotype. And then, um, I guess probably their most famous fan is Bill Walton. Yeah. Bill uh, Walton bugs the shit out of me. Oh man. You know, he has this grateful dead tie dyes on all the time. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it's really interesting people that, that like the dead, um, you know, like you said, there's a stereotype about them that's, you know, it, you know, like a lot of things, it, there's some truth to it, but by and far and large, you know, most people, um, uh, you know, aren't living in a Volkswagen and cooking grilled cheeses on a radiator and, you know, uh, you know, eating hash brownies 24 seven. Let me ask that, you, th- let me ask you this, uh, Gage in closing, cause this is kind of always, I've always thought this is interesting. Um, you know, they're portrayed, like we said, you know, kind of the ambassadors of, you know, this utopian society and, you know, they're these peace loving granola eating hippies and everything, but man, they're huge capitalists. Yeah. Uh, um, I mean, they, they'll, they'll put their name and, and that steal your face emblem on anything and sell it. And you look at like the prices for those fare thee well shows and, you know, they put out a line of, you know, neckties. Um, I mean, do you think some of that's hypocritical or do you think that's really who they are? And there's just this myth about them that doesn't equate to who they actually are as far as business people. Yeah. I mean, they weren't always like that. Um, They, a lot of their revenue was derived from most revenue was derived from live shows. Very little was from album sales. And as they became bigger and bigger, 
only then did they really begin to attempt to monetize on the symbology of the Grateful Dead and um, and other things that were associated with it. I mean, the last like like since Jerry passed away, it, like the cash register has been going nonstop, right? And the whole Fair the Well shows. I mean, whatever. I mean, it, it was it was cool that, that that Trey played with them, but everyone who knew anything knew that this wasn't the last time any of them were getting on stage. Now Phil might, might not play with um, Lesh might not play with, with Weir again, but it, does it really matter? I don't know. I mean, to me, it doesn't. Now, in, in interest of full disclosure, the last Grateful Dead related show I saw was in 2005, and I actually walked out of it. It was a, a Bob Weir's band, Rat Dog, and it was terrible. And I, I walked out. Yeah, and I haven't, I haven't seen anything since then. So it's been 13 years. I've had plenty of opportunities to go, but I'm just like, I don't know if I want to see John Mayer sing Sugary and pay, you know, 150 bucks and and and, and go see Weir forget lyrics to songs he's been singing for 45 years. I'm not saying there aren't good moments, but I'm just not going through that hassle to like be let down and to and for songs to not meet my high expectations. I mean, I can completely understand that. Have you? You need to when you get off uh, here. Go on YouTube. There is an interview on Howard Stern with Chris Robinson. You know, and Chris is a huge deadhead. Yeah. And you know, normally when you hear celebrities interviewed, they're going to be nice about other celebrities, you know, and not pull any punches. But you know, he he can't keep his he can't control his mouth when you know at all. He goes off about John Mayer playing in the Grateful Dead. And really? it's, it's so funny because uh, uh, Chris, who does the podcast with me, he sent me like, I remember when it happened. He's like, uh, apparently Chris Robinson does not like John Mayer. And I'm like, what do you mean? He sent me the link to it. Yeah, you can go and listen to it. It's, I mean, he just, he's like, no, no, it's not the Grateful Dead. Jerry Garcia would be rolling over in his grave. He knew John Mayer's playing his parts, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so you're not going to go see Dead and Company? Uh, no. The only way I'll go see Dead and Company is if they play at the Gorge outside Seattle this summer. I might take my Airstream and go camping. Uh, it, that'll give me a reason to, to take that out. Because since I moved to Idaho, I've gotten into camping, and we'll do. We'll probably go camping seven, eight times this this coming summer. Oh, uh, you're turning to Clark Griswold. You know what? Proudly, Proudly. <laughs> And I now I'll keep my mouth shut. Uh, <laughs> um, well, Gage, uh, this has been a lot of fun. I know yeah. we've we've been working on trying to do this for six or seven months, and for whatever yeah. reason couldn't make it work. But uh, for one thing, I've learned a lot. Uh, secondly, uh, it's always good talking to you. It's always good talking music, especially uh, you know talking to somebody's passionate about music. I, th- th- one of the things that I love about podcasts is I'll listen to some podcasts sometimes uh, about music that I don't really like, but the people that are talking about it are so passionate about it, you can't help but being pressed. And, yeah. uh, and that's not the case here with Grateful Dead because I love the Grateful Dead. But, um, I mean, the way you're spouting off these dates, uh, it's a little dis- <laughs> it's a little disconcerting. If I was like Bob Weir and he's going to be in Boise, Idaho anytime soon, uh, he probably needs to keep uh, one eye over his shoulder because I've got a feeling you're going to be not too far behind. <laughs> yeah, right. By the way, uh, that version of Eyes of the World with Branford Marcellus was March 29th, 1990. Yeah, I've actually I read about that. Uh, this week while I was uh, preparing for it. Well, uh, Gage, as always, you're welcome to be a guest on this podcast uh, whenever you so choose or whatever topic you can come up with. Uh, 
you're uh like i said we've known each other since uh 19 uh i guess i was a freshman in 1994 yeah uh, and 20, so uh, 24 years ago or 25 years yeah ago. 25 yeah. that's scary huh yeah no thanks for having me on you guys uh, i listen to your podcast all the time and what i love about what you guys do is that the breadth of music you discuss and talk about is um is is quite large and it's great because it, it pushes me outside of my comfort zone and i think that's why your um your listenership is growing because it attracts more people and ultimately expands others horizons to listen to things they wouldn't normally would have well i appreciate that yeah i mean that's just kind of <clears throat> that's kind of musically that's kind of how i've been the last probably since i went to college and chris is 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 obviously the same way i was i was laughing because um uh, this week, um, preparing for this, um, I, I had I wanted to to listen to a lot more Dead, and so um, uh, I still have a, a in my in my Tahoe. I have you know a, a six disc uh, uh, CD player, and I really don't put CDs in there anymore. But no. uh, to, this week, I was like, I am. So I almost took a picture of it, put it on Instagram. I had Europe seventy two, had Europe seventy two volume two. I had. Uh, uh, Metallica, Master of Puppets, Metallica, Death Magnetic, and oh gosh, what was the other thing? Anyway, and I was like, you couldn't. Have, well, speaking of the Bay Area, you couldn't have two more different representations of the Bay Area, and I can uh, I, I appreciate uh, uh, both bands. I'm going to see Metallica here in a week and a half. I haven't seen them since 1996. I saw them in Lollapalooza. By the way, Gage saw them in Lollapalooza with uh. uh uh, one of our fraternity brothers, and it was uh, Metallica, Rage Against the Machine, Soundgarden, Rancid, The Ramones, Screaming Trees, and Wailing Jennings. Dude, that sounds awesome. Who'd you go with? Uh, Ryan Wallace. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, uh, apparently James Hetfield's a, just a massive, you know, outlaw country fan, and he said, we'll only do Lollapalooza if y'all can get Waylon Jennings to do a few select shows. And so uh, he got through playing, and he was like, "Folks, I've played all over the world, but I've never seen it's just a good old boy and had people uh, moshing to it." Yeah, uh, I saw I saw Metallica last uh, in, in November here in Boise. They came, and uh, I'm not a Metallica fan, but I had someone offer me tickets late. And they're 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 professionals, man. They put on a great show. Um, they didn't leave you. I mean, they played all four songs that I that I know and like. Um, so I was happy with that. But they did a great job, and um, everyone was eating up. All right, that that's a band you may not think has anything in common with the Grateful Dead, but the the community that, that they have, they you know they change up the set list pretty pretty often. Um, mm-hmm. You know they'll have kind of on each tour they have the same kind of core ten songs, and they'll have like seven or eight they you know play different every night. But the, the Dead, I mean it, that has really the widespread panic does it. Fish obviously does it. The Black Crows did it. Uh, just another great, uh, you know, influence that uh, that the Grateful Dead had. Gage, uh, just kind of flashing through my mind here. Uh, I'd love to have you come on. Let's do '77. Maybe let's do a Spring '90. Let's do the last tour at some point. Uh, just whatever you're comfortable with, uh, I would love to do because, uh, I, like I said, I've, I've learned a lot and it's 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 been it's just been a lot of fun. Yeah, there's 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 no lack of time periods or tours or um you know or kind of like windows into the Grateful Dead's uh, history to discuss and yeah, well we can circle back and maybe maybe we'll go out to ninety then come back to seventy seven and then maybe go to nineteen eighty for their acoustic electric shows and 
All good. Awesome. Well, Gage, once again, thank you so much. Uh, everybody follow us on Twitter at Digital Kill and Instagram, Digital Kill the Radio Star. Like our page on Facebook. I'm going to try to post the uh, uh, Spotify playlist uh, on Facebook and on Twitter. Uh, follow us on SoundCloud, Podchaser, Stitcher, Apple Podcast. Uh, if you get a chance, leave us a review on iTunes or Facebook or Podchaser. That would really help us with getting our uh, name out to more people. Uh, like I said, thank you so very much, everybody that's been listening. Chris and I'll be back with you uh, next week. We've got an interview lined up for Monday night. I think you're all going to enjoy. Until then, take care, everybody. <laughs>